Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. I'm your host, Adam Shand. A journalist must keep their sources secret or risk losing any credibility they have. In Australia, we have forces in politics and law enforcement that love to try and influence investigative journalism in pursuit of their own personal ends and then try to call it public interest. In 2008, I found myself under investigation after a series of scoops on the use of informers to resolve murders in Melbourne's gangland wars. Victoria Police's use of informers would prove to be highly questionable, possibly even illegal. Enter Detective Sergeant Peter Koss. He was an officer I really respected. We collaborated on a story into the Victoria Police Union, where Peter was an executive member and he was also a member of VicPol's Ethical Standards Division. Koss spoke up about certain cops charged with corruption still being funded by the Police Association. He needed personal protection after coming forward. I won a Walkley Award for that story, but soon after, I discovered that the person investigating me this whole time was Peter himself. Welcome, Peter. G'day, Adam. How are you? Very well, mate. Tell me, how close did you get to slapping the cuffs on me? Uh, it was close enough, close enough, but uh, no cigar in the end. No. You were too, uh, you were too wily. <laughs> too wily, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because the argument was that I, could, I wasn't going to reveal my source for a particular piece of information. We can't go into what that information yes. is. But I was being questioned, and it was a sort of a yes-no question. Yeah. Did it come from here or did it come from there? And I kind of went, well, neither. Yeah. I went, huh? I said, well, it, I was given one piece of information on an assumption. I checked it with somebody else, so it was a matter of deduction. Yeah. And they went, deduction? Deduction? <laughs> what are you talking about? But Petra Task Force was a very interesting task force. It was yeah. set up in 2007 yeah. to look into the possible involvement of a serving officer, Paul Dale, of the drug squad, into the murders of Terry and Christine Hodson in May 2004. What was the the mood and the atmosphere like inside that task force? It was pretty good, actually, very confident. So my role was more on who was leaking the information into the underworld from uh, the Victoria Police database. Hodson, for some background, he had been providing information about a range of people in the underworld, from Tony Mockbell to Carl Williams and a whole range of people. But then he gets involved with a serving officer, Sergeant David Meeshel of the drug squad. Yeah. And they come up with the idea to rob Tony Mockbell's drug house in the suburbs. Yeah. Which probably didn't endear them to Tony Mockbell and a bunch of other people. And Hodson was offered protection after this. He was busted for it. He was, uh, Misha was charged. There was a suggestion that Sergeant Paul Dale was also in on this situation. And Hodson was informing on them both. Hodson gets murdered. And suddenly you have what, the, the then Chief Commissioner, Simon Overland, talked about between the nexus between serving police and the underworld. How critical was the work of Petra in the atmosphere of the times back then? I suppose it was uh, reasonably critical because it was the only group, like you needed a dedicated group to investigate something 
as complex as that because it's difficult to get people to talk. It's it's not something you can you can sort of do from I suppose a traditional crime investigation unit. So yeah, it was you needed that uh, specific um, targeting, and also you needed the the backing of something like the Office of Police in, Police Integrity in order to encourage people to uh, to talk to you. Right, and critical to that investigation was the fact that what was called the blue folder, Hodson's informer file. After the break-in at the drug house, after they were arrested, his informer file seemed to get into the underworld somehow. That's right. And in fact, Carl Williams offered information from it to me. There were profile or target profiles, I suppose, were apparently being leaked into the underworld. And so that was my role was to start at the, the bottom, so start with the person who had been found with the uh, the profile and then try and work my way up the chain to find out who was leaking it because the the records were not 100% secure. So it could have been any one of a number of, you know, tens, hundreds of people who could have leaked that. Because the allegation was that this profile, this blue folder, was taken after the break-in to Mockbell's drug house. Yeah. And it was then being circulated in the underworld in order to out Terry Hodgson as an informer. Yep. And the theory was that this outing led to his execution. That's right. And so it gives you photographs, car registration numbers, addresses, all sorts of things. So the profile I was investigating, very similar vein, was ordered by someone in the underworld and there's, there's a chain from the person who leaks it to the person who finally gets it. And I was working up that chain. Right, because there was a lot of leaking going on. In 1996, there was a break-in at the St Kilda Road Police Headquarters. Someone stole a mass of police files about one of the then drug squad's biggest investigations. One of the files had information on an informer who'd earned the trust of a major drug syndicate. Well, I, I was there at the St Kilda Road. I was in the drug squad at the time that went missing. You could see the, how important information was to the crooks at that time. And there was a perception that Victoria Police was a bit porous. You could get in there. You could you could either have someone help you or it might even be possible to get in the building. Yeah. So were you shocked that people could get inside the St Kilda Road police headquarters of the drug squad? Well, I don't think anyone had to break into the drug squad. That sounds like an inside job then. Sounds like an inside job, doesn't it? <laughs> I used to work there. It was, you, you couldn't get in without your slage cards and all the rest of it. There's no way someone actually went there one night, undercover, put his balaclava on and uh, snuck into the drug squad. That was someone, that was someone who had access. Because I think the public at the time assumed there would have been some police involvement because obviously into this period, we're going to a pretty turbulent time in Victoria Police and the underworld as well. Yeah. I mean, we had officers who were working with informers to sell these precursor chemicals for drugs into the underworld to find out where those drugs went, right? Well, that started back in 1991. And very coincidentally, the first crew to start doing that, and they were selling chemicals to underworld figures, was the crew I was working on. We started it with a, an operation called Operation Chances back in... 1991. And what was happening back then was, if you were a crook, 
you could ring up Ajax Chemicals or, or Consolidated Chemicals, places like that, and say, hi, can I get a kilo of phenylacetic acid? Yeah, no worries, come on down. Or can I get some mercuric chloride? Or whatever it was they needed to make their stuff. And it was just flying out the door. So one thing they uh, the, the government had done to sort of regulate it was they required people to fill out an end user statement, right? So if you were buying it, you had to fill out an end user statement to say, I'm using it for a good purpose and I'm making this or I'm making that. That's the reason why I'm buying it. And that washed the hands of the chemical companies. They could say, well, he's filled out an end user statement and we believe him, right? So we got onto that because we had a chemical company ring us up, might have been Ajax, who said, listen, this bloke's bought such and such. We're a little bit sus on him, you know? So we went down and we said, well, let us know when he's coming in the next time, basically. So they rang us up and said, he'll be here in about a couple of hours. So we had to race from Russell Street all the way down to Cheltenham, I think they were. And we would then go into the uh, the warehouse and uh, I would go behind a, a, a shelf of bits and pieces, get out the video camera, which was a fairly large thing, you know, the covert, the covert camera wasn't like covert, <laughs> uh, but you would hide behind the drums and things, and then they would bring the bloke into the warehouse, and he would go to a little desk there, and he'd pick up his box of chemicals or container or whatever it was, and off he would go. And then what we did is I would film that, and then there'd be a team outside in cars, and they would then follow this person away, and that's how that operation started. So we started filming people doing this. Then we also got um, assistance from Consolidated Chemicals in Dandenong also doing that. But after a few months, we're going, the problem was sometimes we wouldn't get there in time to film it. Sometimes you would lose the chemicals that were being sold by the chemical company. So what we needed to do was trying to control the delivery of these chemicals. So we said, righto, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, next time they ring up, say, listen, the government's cracking down on the sale of these chemicals. What you want you to do is to say to them, but if you need them, give Joe Bloggs a ring, right? And we gave them the name of a person who was an undercover cop and give him a ring. I think it was, we were using pages back then, actually. Right. <laughs> 1991, pages, yeah. And uh, get onto him and he can get you anything. And then they, so this group started ringing or contacting our person and they'd say, well, what are you after? And they go, well, I need a, a kilo of uh, phenylacetic acid, whatever. It's all for the production of yeah. methamphetamine and so forth. Yeah, any, yeah. anything they wanted. So you go, yep, no worries. Uh, I can get it for you. Um, I'll meet you at such and such a reserve or I'll meet you at the McDonald's or I'll meet you in Flinders Street or whatever it was. You'd set up a, a pickup point. I'll be there I'll, and they, they would be in touch. So he would, he would then tell us, we would then organise the purchase of those chemicals. But because he was a mystery sort of guy, it was more expensive to buy it from him. You know, like the crooks would be a bit sus if they're getting it at the same price as we're buying it from Ajax or Consolidated. Yeah, where's the profit? Where's the profit, yeah, right? Where's the risk-reward um, ratio? That's right. So what you had to do is you had to add on the underworld cost because our man was part of the, you know, he was a, a sly underworld sort of character. So uh, all you do is triple the price. So if you wanted to get something on the, uh, the black market, if it was, say, you know, $5,000 for a kilo of phenylacetic acid, we go, well, let's just make it fifteen, And don't worry, they were happy to pay. 
So they would, they would pay 15 and then that's how we controlled the delivery and by doing that, we then followed them and we located the amphetamine lab and busted it. And there was a few issues around at the time because some people were going, oh, this is morally wrong, you shouldn't be selling chemicals. They're going, well, if we don't do it, they're going to get it off the chemical companies and no one's going to get caught, right? And so it, it progressed from there. The big issue was suddenly... Victoria Police was making a whacking profit. Oh, we certainly were. Like, we, <laughs> and, we'd, and, come, we'd come back with cash and we'd go to the boss, well, what do you want us to do with this? <laughs> yeah, and so the argument was that it placed intolerable temptation on certain less resilient officers, shall we say, less, less, less honest officers, who then assumed a powerful position yeah. in the supply of these chemicals to these crooks. And this was all about the getting the chemicals was the name of the game. Yeah. Back then we didn't have an undercover, we didn't have an undercover, a UC group, right? If if you wanted someone to be an undercover person, you just have a look around the, the drug squad office and you go, look, I need to get, I need someone to buy a bit of cannabis. Oh, that bloke over there, he's got long hair and a beard. He looks like a bit <laughs> of a smoker. Uh, we'll use him, Right. So the guy we chose to do this job was an older member of the drug squad. When I say older, he was probably in his 40s. He was reasonably well-dressed and that sort of thing because he was meant to be some sort of uh, nefarious broker of chemicals and he was in that business sort of thing. Well, the guy we chose was one of those blokes who later went to jail. Yeah. (laughs) Looking at it from the crook's perspective, and I got to talk to them about it over the years, was that suddenly they had this source who was incredibly influential. And as long as you stayed on the right side of him, you were sweet. They were, you were, they were, little empires were being built. Oh, um, no doubt. No doubt. Empires you're talking about in the drug squad. You know, we did it quite successfully for a number of years. I was at the drug squad from 1990 to early 97. And, and we did it very successfully selling chemicals um, initially by the way I explained before through using our own undercover. And then later on, I did it very successfully through an informer who was very keen on staying out of jail. And he delivered a lot. He delivered a lot of plan labs to us. He was just brilliant. Again, he would say, oh, I know a bloke who wants this you know, I'll just use phenylacetic acid again. He wants phenylacetic acid. How much does he want? He wants two kilos or whatever. I go, yeah, no worries. So we'd go and source it. By that time, we had a unit in the drug squad office. We weren't going to the chemical companies anymore. We had a unit in the drug squad office who would then source the chemicals and they'd say, right, oh, Pete, you can give this to your man, uh, but we want $15,000 for that. I go, no worries. So I give it to my bloke. He would do the uh, he would do the um, exchange. We would uh, start our surveillance, etc., and track down the lab from that, and the money would go back into the uh, into the drug squad. So we did it quite successfully. And if it was done the way we did it, without putting your finger in and taking a slice for yourself or whatever it was that other people were doing, um, I didn't see a problem with it because these people were going to make amphetamine whether we assisted them or not. So personally, I didn't, I didn't have any issues. A lot of people had all the moral issue and all that sort of thing. Unless you, unless you get into the fight with them, you're not going to win. So you, you had to become involved somehow and you're better off 
being involved on the inside and not setting people up but assisting them rather than it, it just going people, people making it nonstop without any sort of control or identification. I really accept your argument, but I hear from other people of the same era who have an equally strong argument that the moral temptation was just far too great. It was for some members, but yeah, if and you had the right members there, it wasn't. Right, but mm. you'd, worked, you'd worked in ethical standards, which is... Or well, later on, yeah. Yeah, you did work later yeah. on, uh, which the toe cutters, they were the ones take, taking out <laughs> the, right. the corrupt coppers, <laughs> yeah. and you got to see the different characters, the different personalities of these officers and what made them vulnerable, either to unethical behaviour or outright corruption. Mm. What makes an unethical cop or a, a bent cop, in your opinion? Oh, look, it's it's hard to say. I mean, um, there's a couple of people I worked with at the drug school who ended up in jail, and uh, for the life of me, I wouldn't have picked them at all. I, th- I think it's not a matter of I want to be corrupt or I want to be the bad guy or whatever, because some people do have that sort of fixation, you know. They become the person. They, they develop a persona and they and they sort of try and live it like undercover officers might do that. But I think whether whether it's a police officer or, or Joe Bloggs on the street, I think people at the end are driven by either power or money. Now, I honestly believe it's their power people and money people. And a lot of people are driven by money due to their financial circumstances or they want, to, they want more than what they've currently got. And I, I think it's just, uh, it's just the age-old temptation of, wanting a bigger slice of the pie. Well, I talked to one officer who ended up going bent and he talked about the fact that whatever moral fibre you had, whatever your background and so on and so forth, you could get worn down. You'd go to a crook's house, you'd bust him, he'd have $60,000 in a, in a laundry basket. You'd yeah. say, is that yours? I've never seen it before. No one else has seen it before and he's, he's not going to say anything. You could take that $60,000. Some people did. And there'd be no consequences. Well, that's right. Who are they going to complain to? I, I went to a house in Essendon once as part of a, a raid, a search, and we found just under $400,000 in a uh, Safeway bag hanging on a coat hanging in a wardrobe. Just a, a cloth Safeway bag. $400,000. That's a fair bit of money. And there was lots of other money, 10000 in a drawer here, 5000 over there. It was a bit of a, a dirty house. Should always put the money in the money cupboard, well, you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> well, we actually had um, a money dog run through. Dogs can sniff out cash. Believe me, they're very good. I've got a chocolate dog. That's all he can <laughs> sniff out, I tell you. <laughs> well, we'd already found the bag in the closet, but I left it there just to see if the dog could find it because it was up high um, and the, dogs, the dog did sniff it out. But any one of us could have easily picked that up and thought, you know what, I'm just going to walk out the back door, pop, pop it in the car and come back in as if I'm going out the car to get another piece of equipment or, or whatever. You could do that. It's Anyone could do that. It comes down to the individual person. So for 400 grand, and I'm talking about, I don't know, f- probably 15 years ago, it's a fair bit of money. But uh, no, no, obviously um, that went on the exhibit list with all the rest of it. Good. And f- for a change, it wasn't, oh, that's not mine. Well, you know, who's going to say 400 grand is not theirs? 
I mean, the atmosphere at that time was incredible because Melbourne was the party drug capital of the world. That's what we were told. There's so the demand was huge, the money was splashing around, the crooks were going left, right, and centre. What was it like being an, an average walloper on, on on a public service salary, seeing these worthless individuals, you know, robbing, drugging, yeah. murdering, living in, going to the media, becoming glamorised, and you guys had to go back to your your office with your you know, Pablo coffee and <laughs> powdered milk or whatever. My mother, my mother used to have Pablo coffee at Did home. She, oh, she uh, must have I, hated you. Tell well, you I drank coffee about a year when I was 17 or so, and I never drank it since. So you can thank Pablo for that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying because it's in your face and these people get away with it, et cetera, et cetera. I'll, I'll give you an example. What you need to do is you need, you need to be paying your investigators or people who are exposed to this, you need to pay them an amount of money to do that job so that they go, hey, I'm not going to risk my $100,000 a year job or $200,000 a year job or whatever the rate is that you need to pay them to not do the wrong thing. I wouldn't be personally critical of, um, of those people per se and I think it's up to other people who might recognise they've got shortcomings or failures in any certain area uh, like that to actually work with them to help them overcome that if that's what they perceive they have. If you want to sit on the sidelines and, and just keep barking at people because, uh, look at you, you, you're no good or whatever, that's not going to help you. It's not going to help your members and it's not going to help the police, in, yeah, police force in general. Yep. Morale and confidence and leadership was very low at that time and we did see the phenomenon of officers giving up jobs to the media, to crooks, um, and let's let, let's let's get back to my investigation. <laughs> That's what that was about. Was was information that was reaching me on how things were being done, cases that were being pursued. So back to that environment at the time, there was an excessive level of secrecy. There was a there was a, a punitive approach. To, to people who got information and I found myself at the wrong end of that and you were you were putting the putting the uh, you know <laughs> well I just the laser focus on me yeah well it was it's a lot of coincidence in all this isn't there I was involved in that interview with you for the Sunday program back in 2007 I think which dealt was. with how the police union was too powerful the force within a force as we called it that's right and that they were involved in uh, someone else called a mateocracy. That as long as you were a mate to, of, of of the the secretary and his coterie, yeah. you were okay. If you weren't, you were on the outer, and you were on the outer. If yeah, so I wasn't a mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm still not a mate. The long story behind that too. Anyway, but I think the point you're you're making about the secrecy and that I think there has to be a level of secrecy uh, with some investigations in order to. You don't want the targets of your investigations finding out for starters. There has to be secrecy for some of your, you might call them informers, you might call them witnesses. People were getting killed left, right and centre back then. I, 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 will, I will give you that. One of my sources at that time was a fellow called Dennis Fatty Smith. Yes. Who had been a notorious crook in Victoria for a long time. He'd cleared out to the Philippines where he had the most disgusting bar in the world, Aussie bar, I think it was called, yeah. where crooks could go and do whatever they wanted up there. It was was hideous. Anyway, he, at the end of his long and 
undistinguished career, ended up in a nursing home in Keelor in, in Melbourne, and I found he was there. Yeah. And uh, he was one of my key sources to see what was going on inside the, the Petra Task Force uh, because he was being accused of being a driver on that day when Brian Kane was shot dead in revenge for his likely killing of armed robber Raymond Chuck Bennett back in 1979. Right. And that, that uh, Russell Cox and Rodney Earl Collins were the shooters and Dennis was out in the car. So he became my source and was telling me bits and pieces about it. And just putting those bits of information on the radio sent some of your bosses crazy. Certainly did. And um, I just happened to be running that investigation at the time as the detective sergeant uh, running a crew on that investigation. And I'd come in on that fairly late. So... I was tasked with basically contacting you and finding out what your source was, essentially. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I can't really do that. I know Adam because of this thing we did back in 2007, you know, force within the force, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, no, you're going to do it. I said, all right, well, you know what he's going to tell me? He's going to tell me that he got it off a confidential source. I said... Because I'm not, I wasn't going to speak to you as I need to go out and arrest you and, and interview you and force you to answer a question. That, that's not the way we work. You know, I can arrest you and, and ask you a question, but I didn't even have a power of arrest. So the best I could do is really just ring up and say, G'day, Adam, how you going? How about we catch up for coffee? And, and uh, unbeknownst to you during that uh, conversation, that particular conversation we had, I basically got out from you that it came from a, uh, a confidential source. Mm. So I went back and said, well, you're not going to believe what he told me. He got it from a confidential source. You, mate, you were far too good for me. <laughs> far too good for me. So, you know, my, my powers of, uh, you know, probably buying you a coffee and a cake just didn't didn't work. So, and then, um, yeah, then it went on from there. But we did almost get the cuffs on you, if you like. Um, yeah. you know, we, we were ready to uh, march you up to the Supreme Court, but... Um, uh, no, I didn't quite get to that because you, you, were too, uh, you were too wily with your answers, but... I think what they were probably doing, uh, what they probably do in relation to journalists getting information which is considered to be, should be kept secret or, or um, you know, and not leaked or whatever, is they're more concerned about, not you, they're concerned about where you're getting it from. So is it a whistleblower? Like when you think about my investigation um, at Petra, who was leaking all the profiles, that was that was coming back to a, a police officer. So the leak in that case was going from a police officer directly to the underworld, whereas in your case, you're getting information off an old-time crook and sort of um, letting people know about it on your little, uh, on your radio program. Now, I don't know if I've really gone into detail with you about this, but you made a number of revelations on Triple M back in the day uh, not just about Fatty Smith, but also about Nicola Gobbo and a couple of other things. And about probably a year or so after, after I was sent out to interview you or find out what your source was, I was I received a phone call from the Office of Police Integrity telling me that I had to front up to be interviewed in relation to releasing confidential police information. I was now back at ethical standards. I'm sitting at my desk and I get a phone call out of the blue to that, to that extent. And I said, well, what's it about? 
And they're going, well, we can't tell you. You'll have to come in and be interviewed. I said, well, when do you want, when do you want to interview me? And they said, oh, oh we can't do it this week. Um, how about, how about we, we try, how are you suited for Thursday next week? I said, yeah, righto, I'll come over and have a chat. I said, am I being interviewed as a suspect or you just want to have a chat? He goes, oh, no, 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 you're a suspect in releasing confidential information. I said, right, well, what's it about? And, and they wouldn't tell me and I had no idea. And they said, we need you to bring along all your diaries and notes and things to this interview. So they get off the phone and when, when you work at, uh, at that time uh, at uh, Ethical Standards, all the work you did was reviewed by people at the API. And having been on the Petra Task Force, I had worked very closely with pretty much all the investigators at the API. And now I'm being dragged into the API for, to be interviewed about leaking this confidential information. So I thought, well, I can't sit here for the next week and just continue to work and get my work reviewed by them if I'm suspected of leaking information. So I went and told my, my superintendent and said, I'm going home. You'll have to I'm, – I'm going to suspend myself. Like I can't con- continue Massive to work conflict. Here. You can't sit there, yeah. Apparently I'm, uh, I'm a crook and I've been – A Gary give up, yeah. which is the worst thing you could be called in the cops, that's, isn't it? That's pretty much right. Yeah. So anyway um, – he said, well, I don't know anything about this. Uh, he was furious because the protocols were, if the API were going to investigate an ESD member, they're meant to go through the chain of command. They're meant to contact the assistant commissioner for ESD, who would then go down and speak to his superintendent, who would then tell the inspector, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'd probably get called up to the super's office. You know, But they had no idea. So all hell broke loose and I just walked out. And I turned up for my interview about a week later. And um, it's probably one of the most comical things I've ever been involved in because they were just complete idiots. They were just inept, absolutely inept. The problem they had was because I knew most of their investigators, they all had a conflict of interest with me. So I was interviewed by an analyst. So they interviewed me and it was all about four instances of where you'd made comments on triple M over a period of 12 months where they linked me in to what you were saying. I did not know this. No, you didn't know this. So I get, I get asked, like they started off by saying, um, oh, what's, you know, they get the tape rolling. I said, do I get a copy of that uh, tape? And they said, no, you don't. I said, well, I want a copy of the interview because I'm being interviewed. And they go, well, you don't get a copy. I said, well, can I make notes? And they said, you can make notes. So I got out my little micro cassette, put it on the table and turned it on. They said, what are you doing? I said, I'm making my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, there were four instances where you had delivered revelations on Triple M about things going on in the underworld. And they linked me in with phone calls where I might have spoken to you on the phone a week or two prior to you making that announcement or whatever. And, and I said, look, I've known Adam for a long time. Oh, do you? Yeah. I said, yeah, I have. And they said, well, when did you first meet him? And I told them about the interview and the Walkley Award and that sort of thing. Oh, no, they didn't know that. I said, well, if you'd done a Google search, you would have found that out. I mean, this bloke's an analyst, by the way. One of the things they asked me about was that one about Fatty Smith. And I said, that's already been resolved. That's Mm. already been resolved uh, by another investigative body. 
And uh, it wasn't me who leaked that information to Adam Shand. I can prove that. You just give them a call and they'll tell you, yeah, yeah, we worked it out ourselves. It was, Adam got it directly off uh, Fatty Smith. I didn't so know. I did not know about this, but I think yeah. this really underlines a conversation we had right at the beginning when we did that interview for for Channel Nine, the, the, the Sunday program. Mm -hmm. And I said, "What will happen in the long term? They can't stop you speaking now, but do you feel vulnerable in the long term, having a relationship with me, going on the television, talking about in, internal matters, association and the force? Did you feel like in the end that you are a little bit of a marked man by stepping in front of the camera?" So by stepping in front of the camera, that actually resolved all, a lot of my issues with the association. They backed off pretty quick because the way a bully works is they bully you and you're too frightened of them and you're too scared to say anything. But I went on national TV. I took a big risk doing that. I was very glad to speak to you, but I didn't think you were going to get away with it completely unscathed. No. So when I hear this story now... Yeah. I do connect it to your willingness to be principled and to speak out. Yeah. So what, what happened in the end, someone actually made a complaint about me. Someone in the crime department has put two and two together and got six because they're obviously doing some investigation and I don't know how, how they did it, but somehow they had access to my phone records and your phone records because they matched up the dates of times we'd spoken yeah. on the phone and these four, I mean, you were on Triple M every day almost, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, oh, quite uh, a lot at that time. Once, once a week or whatever it was. At least a couple of times a week at that time. Yeah. So in a period, I, I, in a period I, I, of eight, I had so much information I could hardly stay off <laughs> there to be honest. But hey. Well, you know, in the period of about 14 months, which is when the first revelation was put to me and then the last one, you must have been on Triple M hundreds of times. Yeah. Saying things. And over that period of time, they pick out four, which coincided with times I'd spoken to you on the phone, right? Yeah. So they're going, oh, Pete's spoken to Adam here and, and, and he's, and he's he, something's come out a, a day later. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was just the most ridiculous attempt to try and uh, suggest that, well, I must be leaking to you, you know, like it's just ludicrous. And in fact, I could prove by telling them to go to an outside agency and they had the result of that. They mm. knew they could tell you it wasn't me. So that, that ticks off one of the four. So yep. they're down to three. I can't remember exactly two of them, but one of the other ones was, oh, and I recall this, Nicola Gobbo had received a payout. She'd sued Victoria Police and she'd received a payout. And it was all confidential. Mm. But I remember you, I was sitting at Petro and you rang me up and said, hey, Pete, how you going? Good. And, you know, you being the normal um, hard-nosed uh, reporter was giving me tricky questions like, and so how much was she paid out, Pete? And, uh, it said, I heard it was $5 million. I think that's what you told me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, I, and I don't recall if you recall, remember if you call the conversation, I'm saying, listen, Adam, you know, first of all, her, her payout is confidential, right? The only people who know what she was paid out and why she was paid out and all the rest of it are people well above my pay grade. And, and you, I guess the whole point of this is that there was a massive public interest for this information to get out. And I think the yeah, and yeah. I think you and I have been through the wars and the and the cuts and scratches of that process where principle is more important than expediency because what was driving that whole program, Peter Koss, was expediency mm. about cleaning up the gangland war, 
putting away the crooks that they thought or they believed were, were responsible. And due process, hey, hey, that was an afterthought at times, I reckon. If people did go beyond their remit to, to make sure information got out there, if if journalists did put themselves at risk or, or and, and so on and so forth, well, so be it, in my opinion. So be it. The, the state of Victoria is a better place today than it was because of that. Yeah. As a, an honest cop doing his job, how difficult was it when there's all this politics and stories and agendas uh, being run? Yeah, well, you've just got to be, um, just got to be very careful. <laughs> just very to be careful, very careful. Indeed. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, anyway. you, And you're recently retired. Yes. How, yeah. do you, how do you reflect on your career? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I did over the years. Um, yeah, working at the drug squad at uh, PSC, um, you know, people go, oh, you know, why would you work there, that sort of thing. It's not the sort of place where you go to work because you're going to tick someone off on not wearing their hat or, you know, they they uh, they sped too fast in the police car or something like that. It, it's corruption. So you're working on people who are committing crimes, you know. Um, I've charged people who were um, involved in multi-million dollar police, uh, one police officer involved in a multi-million dollar fraud, police officer drug trafficking. And, you know, working overseas, I mean, that was... Uh, that was really special. Um, you know, you're actually helping helping people, you're saving lives, that sort of thing. So it's, it's you really, a whole gamut of stuff that I'd done, I can look back on it a bit, with a bit of pride and, um, you know, so many funny stories too, so many coincidences and things. Again, tell know. me all the yarns you didn't tell me back then, eh? It's good. <laughs> Peter, listen, thank you for your time. That's right. Thank you for your service to the community and also thank you for not arresting me. Yeah, no problem, Adam. Uh, it would have been the most embarrassing part of my, my uh, career if I'd, if I'd had to pop my head up and say, oh, Adam, hello, um, can you follow me down at the Supreme Court? <laughs> That's it. You'll have to catch me. <laughs> That's it. Thank you, Peter Koss. Production by Matt Dwyer and Bonnie Lavelle. Sound design by Matt Dwyer. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Theme music by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening.